Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Turkey has been a NATO member since 1952 and is a founding member of the Council of Europe. Its long-standing orientation toward the West has included early membership in the key institutions of the global order, such as the United Nations and World Bank, as well as its negotiations to join the European Union. But over the last several years, we have witnessed an erosion of democracy within Turkey and increased disagreement on foreign policy priorities with the United States and other allies. Today's show features an interview with Kamal Kirishi, Tusiad Senior Fellow and Director of the Turkey Project in our Center on the United States and Europe. He is the author of the new book from the Brookings Institution Press, Turkey in the West, Fault Lines in a Troubled Alliance. After the interview, stay tuned to hear from Stephen Hess, reading an excerpt from his forthcoming memoir. In the excerpt, Steve recounts meeting with Richard Nixon in New York on November 22, 1963, the day President Kennedy was assassinated. Follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, here's Brookings Press Director Bill Finan with Kamal Karishi. Thanks, Fred, and hello, Kamal. Thanks for joining us today to talk about your new book. Thanks, Bill. I was struck by a sentence near the beginning of your new book. Turkey's deteriorating relations with the United States and the European Union and its dramatically weakened commitment to liberal democracy and a market economy have been a source of concern to many observers. What struck me was that less than a decade ago, no one would have suggested that would describe Turkey today. But it does. Your book is the story of why that's the case. Can you tell us first why we wouldn't have thought of Turkey being described like this such a short time ago? What made the West the rest of the world, so positive about Turkey? Mm -hmm. Thanks, Bill. That's a very good question there. And I think the reason why we were taken back is that many of us thought democratization was a linear development, Mm -hmm. that uh, it would just continue improving, improving, and improving. Whereas that's not what has happened. In the case of Turkey... But more frighteningly, also in the case of a number of European Union member countries, especially from Eastern Europe, such as Poland and Hungary, although I have to recognize that there are differences of degree between what's happening in Turkey and in the countries that I have mentioned. The common denominator there being this preference, growing preference on the part of political leaders and those in government for majoritarian understanding of democracy. What had been achieved in the case of Turkey, starting from roughly the mid-1990s, was that a coalition of what I call a dream team Mm. from the United States as well as the European Union engaged Turkey with an agenda of anchoring Turkey in what is often referred to as the international liberal order. And I happen to have lived through that in academia. I started my professional career roughly in 1989 when Turkish democracy was still in serious trouble. It had come out of the military intervention of 1980 
and some tiny little steps towards improved democracy, human rights were taken. But there were still huge problems. Going back to 1989, just referring to the Kurds as Kurds was difficult and you risked being indicted for doing that or detained. And the Kurds are a large minority within southern Turkey? Yes, and constituting, depending from what perspective you look at it, 10, 12, 15 percent of the population. And it has long been a challenge of the Turkish Republic to recognize that identity and to include them in Turkish politics as Kurds, as opposed to constructed Turks, if you wish. And the engagement that I made references to earlier on opened up this space. And by the time Turkey had been extended EU candidate status for EU membership, and by the time Turkish membership negotiations with the European Union had started, I humbly think that we had in front of us the most liberal Turkey that I personally experienced. And fascinatingly, this very quickly led to Turkey being touted as a model for countries aspiring to democratize, but also to develop a dynamic liberal economy, export-oriented, and also a country attracting ever-growing number of foreign nationals as tourists, as students, as business people, as artists, etc. In your book, there are several threads to your story about what brought Turkey to the moment you just Mm. described or I just described from your book. And they're both domestic and foreign. And I want to ask you about the foreign first. The most important foreign factor would be Syria, right? Syria, as far as recent times go, Mm. and what a Turkish academic in a New York Times piece called Imperial Fantasy. And what was meant with these two terms was that Turkey was leaving behind its long-standing Western vocation in favor of an adventure in the eyes of some to reconstitute a neo-Ottoman sphere of influence. But in the case of this particular academic, the notion of bringing together the Muslim community of the geography over which the Ottoman Empire ruled together. And this was, ironically, very much fired up by the Arab Spring and by the expectation that regimes in that Arab Spring geography would be replaced by Muslim Brotherhood-led regimes. Muslim Brotherhood political perspective turned out to be very close to hardcore Islamist thinking within the ruling political party. However, that was a relatively recent development in the course of the last six, seven, eight years. But there is also another factor to do with the external world extending way back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, but especially the 80s and 90s. That is... Turkey's what again another academic called liminal status in the West. 
that Turkey has one foot in the West, but another outside the West. And there is two sides to this medallion. There is the Western European and to some extent American perspective too, that Turkey is the odd man out. It doesn't fit in Mm -hmm. into the West the way, for example, Poland fitted joyfully. Remember the excitement as the Cold War was coming to an end and the language that the EU had adopted for them was them returning to the fold of Europe. Whereas in the case of Turkey, there was always controversy. Is it part of Europe or not? The other side of the medallion is Turkish attitudes towards the West. Traditionally, going all the way back to the 18th century, there is this perspective, even in the Ottoman Empire, to modernize the empire and subsequently the Turkish Republic along Western lines. Mm -hmm. And secularism, for example, is a very strong aspect of it. And with the end of the Second World War, we see a Turkey that, you know, I'm tempted to say enthusiastically wanting to join Western institutions. For example, the Council of Europe, for example, NATO, and then what was then known as GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariff, which became the World Trade Organization, a long series of basically Western institutions, but always with attention and discomfort over human rights, democratic issues, but also recognition of Turkey's long-standing internal diversity. And the 1990s, precisely as I pointed out earlier on, was a time when you see the West, the European Union and the United States together engaging Turkey and gradually opening up the space. So we have the West trying to bring Turkey in and then Turkey wanting to join the West. But there is that this moment that occurred and it was a long drawn out moment where Turkey has found itself opposed to the West now. And what I wanted to ask is, was Syria that pivotal moment, though, or has it been the most instrumental moment in recent years where that division has erupted? Actually, symbolically for me, it started with the European Council decision in December 2006 to freeze accession negotiations on a set of chapters. Every candidate country for European Union membership has to negotiate roughly 35 chapters. Negotiating them really means adopting the European Union acquis in these particular issue areas. And the acquis means, I'm sorry, and the acquis means? The acquis means the rules and regulations that the European Union has adopted through its existence. And eight such chapters were frozen. And then, as the mood in the European Union changed increasingly away from the social democrats that tended to envisage a Europe for which there was a place for Turkey, to Christian democratic perspective on Europe, which was very much divided on whether Turkey should be a member 
or should have some privileged relationship with the European Union. And advocates of that idea was, for example, the former president of France, Nicolas Sarkozy, but also Chancellor Angela Merkel. And that narrative and also those decisions changed the mood in Turkey, in the public opinion that enthusiasm for EU membership began to fall. Mm -hmm. There was a time for a couple of years where the current president of Turkey, who was then the prime minister, throw in the notion of adopting that Aki for the sake of Turkey. So the agenda was still to try to further democratize Turkey and expand liberal market practices as well as recognize more and more Turkey's diversity. That did not last very long. And I have a whole chapter in the book mm -hmm. going into the domestic developments, the nitty-gritty that saw Turkey losing this liberalizing democratic space in Turkey and that being replaced by an increasingly majoritarian understanding of a democracy accompanied with growing polarization. And then came the Gezi Park events, the protests that erupted at the center of Istanbul over the government's project to convert one of the few remaining green spaces in Istanbul into a commercial center and all the symbolism that was engaged with that protest. And the protests were brutally repressed. And then subsequently we see Turkey becoming increasingly authoritarian. And that process begins to coincide with the Syrian issue. Ah, okay. Uh, right? So that's 2012, 13, mm -hmm. 14. So this seems like a good moment to talk about the domestic factors that led to the shift in Turkey from democratic model to authoritarian concern. How did we go from the miracles, as you call them in the book, in the political, social, and economic spheres to this much darker moment? You argue it was a series of incremental moves. What were those moves? Can you sketch them out? I would argue that one of the most important moves was narrowing the space of free conversation, freedom of expression, the freedom of the media. It had already started earlier on, but I think with the Gezi Park protests, it became more visible. Mm -hmm. I say it had already started because in those days, you also may recall that references was made to one particular TV channel who chose to broadcast a documentary on penguins while CNN International was giving minute-by-minute minute developments of these protests live. That, I think, is very telling that already by June 2013, the media or parts of the media was feeling constrained to the extent of having to ignore such a gigantic development almost next door to the building in which 
that particular TV was housed. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, again, in the book, I go into the details, but those listeners who may have been following Turkey closely will recall two terms, Ergenekon and the Sledgehammer court cases that had started in 2008 and was composed of these dossiers against a string of military officers, members of the police force, but also academia and media who were being indicted for planning, contemplating a coup against the government. Subsequently, it became clear that these charges, the indictments, the so-called evidence in those indictments were very much manipulated and manipulated by prosecutors, judges, and police officers who were closely associated with the Gulen movement that today in Turkey is considered as having been behind the July 2016 coup attempt. Much of what's happened on the domestic side, this creeping authoritarianism, if I can call it that, has happened under the watch of the current president, Erdogan, who was a former prime minister. What can you tell us about Erdogan's political biography? Because it's closely allied with the rise of the Justice and Development Party, Mm -hmm. too. His political career goes way back to the 1970s as he joined the ranks of another political Islamic movement that in Turkey we call Milli Görüş. National Outlook is the English translation, and I discuss the origins and the nature of that movement in the book quite extensively. That movement has long argued that Turkey's orientation should not be towards the West and that its relationship with the West has undermined Turkey's Islamic values and advocated constantly the notion that Turkey should form, lead what at the time in the 70s and 80s would come to be called the Islamic common market, the Islamic NATO. And these were ideas very much advocated by political leader who has since passed away called Nejmettin Erbakan. This movement, or Erbakan himself, was also very much in favor of the idea of a state-controlled economy, very much into these notions of heavy industry, a little bit ideas going back to the 30s and 40s. What Erdogan and his colleagues towards the late 1990s did was to begin to separate themselves from the ideology of this movement and began to advocate, surprisingly, liberal market 
practices, but also the idea of human rights across the board, as well as democratization. And by the time Turkey was hit by a major economic and financial crisis in 2001, and the parties, the leaders in government were mostly implicated in corruption, they came forward with an exciting and, if not refreshing, agenda. And part of that agenda was working towards EU membership, Mm -hmm. adopting the kind of reforms that would edge Turkey towards a liberal democracy and open the way to membership negotiations. Again, part of that refreshing agenda was to improve relations with Turkey's neighbors. One item that was particularly exciting and refreshing was to work with the United Nations to resolve the problem in Cyprus, for example. And I think that agenda coming on the heels of that financial crisis and corruption scandals swept the public opinion off their feet and put the political party into the Turkish parliament with enough of a majority that allowed them to pursue that agenda. And chapeau to them, they did pursue it and they did find themselves in 2005 starting accession negotiations with the European Union. In the last several years, we've seen Erdogan and his party move from this bright moment to what I've been calling this dark moment. And again, there are these variety of factors that have led to this, but there was nothing in those earlier days that would lead anyone to believe this was going to be what we see now. Maybe elements of it. Yeah. Maybe elements of it. And one that is frequently referred to in the literature was just months, if not weeks ahead of the summit in Brussels that would take the decision to start accession negotiations with Turkey in October 2005. The meeting was in December 2004, the meeting that would take that particular decision. Months, if not weeks ahead of it, Erdogan began to push the idea of adopting legislation to criminalize adultery. Mm -hmm. That provoked a reaction. Women organizations began to protest. There was pressure from the European Union too. There was pressure from within the coalition that Erdogan had managed to put together to support this EU vocation, and he did take a step back. But many would argue that this attempt was a sign Mm. of maybe his true agenda. And then many others also keep making references to a statement he made in the mid-1990s where he talked about democracy as a tram car that you get on until you reach your destination. He never defined that destination, and then you get off it. Mm. And many retrospectively feel that that's exactly what has happened in Turkey. 
In the book, I argue that starting roughly with the Gezi Park protests in June 2013, you see more and more of a Milli Görüş, National Outlook agenda surfacing. And that agenda increasingly puts emphasis on religion and on religion's role in the political sphere, accompanied with growing conservatism. And one manifestation of that conservatism very recently has been the purging of the teaching of Darwin's theories in uh, schools. You end the book with a series of recommendations, and you make the argument that the West cannot let go of Turkey, but Turkey can't let go of the West. Briefly, what is your vision for the future, the relationship between the West and Turkey? I think I quote a grand American ambassador who has served in Turkey, but also in Baghdad during his career. I heard him this past July making the following reference. He said to the audience at this particular event, he said, you may be taken back by what I'm going to say. Then he went on to say it and said, that we, meaning the United States and the West, could have not won the Cold War without Turkey. And then he said, Turkey could have not protected its national sovereignty without being in the West. And then he went on to say that today, the problems that crowd the American agenda with the exception of North Korea, the South Chinese Sea, and for some reason he made references to Colombia, all the other problems are around Turkey. And we need Turkey as much as Turkey needs us. And I think that quote very much captures the picture out there. Turkey, unlike Russia, unlike Iran or unlike the Gulf countries, has to have an economy that works, that functions and that exports to be able to import the energy that Turkey needs to make this economic machinery work. And hence, Turkey has a national interest, I would argue, to make sure that the international liberal order, which supports free trade, which supports the rule of law to protect investments and attract investments, and democratic values to be able to ensure that this economy uh, functions and generates prosperity. Turkey is still a relatively young country and it has a growing population. And the good years that we talked about were exactly the years when Turkey was most integrated in the West, and they also were the years when the Turkish economy performed best, and people looked up to Turkey to 
emulated. From there, I conclude that Turkey's interest is closely tied with the West rather than those countries toward which the current leadership has tried to drag Turkey towards. And uh, during the research for the book, I had the grand honor and pleasure of discussing my project with lots of serving but also retired Turkish officials. And there were two former ambassadors who underlined it a number of times that what makes Turkey attractive and influential in international relations is its democracy and its relationship with the West. Beyond that, they said, Turkey doesn't have much and its military power only follows those qualities. And I think when we look at the picture today, the picture speaks for itself. Less than 10 years ago, Turkey had these great relationships with the neighborhood and the Turkish political leaders could visit Baghdad, could visit the heart of the Shi'i land in the social, political, and historic sense of the word, Kerbela, and it could also be received by Hezbollah in Lebanon, as well as host Shimon Peres as the president of Israel next to the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. That Turkey is not there anymore. Kamal, thank you very much for coming by to talk about your new book with us today. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. You can order Kamal Karishi's book, Turkey in the West, Fault Lines and a Troubled Alliance, on our website or wherever you like to buy books. And now, here's Steve Hess. This is Stephen Hess, Senior Fellow Emeritus at the Brookings Institution, reading from an excerpt of a political memoir to be published in the fall 2018. November 22nd, 1963. Friday. I am in New York to meet Richard Nixon mid-afternoon when he returns from Dallas, where he is attending a board meeting of Pepsi-Cola. Having lost the election for governor of California in 1962, he is now out of elective politics practicing law in New York City. He has asked if I would help him write a book. It will be Nixon as the insider's insider, challenging Teddy White to tell the story of the next presidential election. Teddy writes, The Making of the President 1960 was the greatest political book I had ever read, taking readers backstage where they had never been before. Among those of us who write about politics, it was revolutionary. I love the possibilities of Nixon versus White. 
The White Book had been at the top of the bestseller list for all of 1961. The only other book so rewarded was the New English Bible. Ken McCormick, Doubleday's editor-in-chief, says Doubleday is very enthusiastic and will make a firm offer on Monday. I'm having a leisurely lunch at the Monsignor with Ellen Roberts, my editor at Doubleday. The waiter comes up to the table and says, Kennedy did. He speaks in broken English, heavy Italian accent. Is this a joke? We take off down Fifth Avenue to seek confirmation, which we get in a Magnavox showroom. John F. Kennedy, 35th President of the United States, has been assassinated while riding in a motorcade in Dallas, Texas. I call Nixon's Wall Street Law Office. It is now 2.15. Nixon has just returned to New York. He had heard the news when his cab from the airport stopped at a red light in Queens. I'm told to go directly to his apartment, 810 Fifth Avenue at 62nd Street. When I get there, he greets me at his apartment's front door. His jacket is off. He's still wearing a tie. He appears shaken. His daughters are home and glued to television. He told them it might have been him. Yet in his memoirs, he wrote, he never felt there but for the grace of God go I. He shows me his interview in yesterday's Dallas Morning News. We are still standing in the front hall. The article says that he asked for a courteous reception for Kennedy when he arrives in Dallas. The reference is to a recent Dallas incident where Adlai Stevenson was heckled and spat upon. This is not the way people should disagree in a democracy. We should pay respect for political adversaries. Why is he showing me this article now? I think probably this is his unspoken way to say, see, I didn't have anything to do with this terrible act. We move into his den. He calls J. Edgar Hoover. Is the killer a right-winger? This is most on his mind. No, says the FBI director. He was a communist with a Castro connection. <laughs> How quickly they knew. This is a relief. He calls Eisenhower at the Waldorf, who is taking a nap and will return the call later. We are joined by his friend Paul Keyes and his secretary, Rose Woods. There must be a short statement for the press. TV cameras are already in front of the building. He will tell of his friendship with Kennedy when they were both freshman members of the House of Representatives. Rose must clear his schedule to go to the funeral. He was to have played golf tomorrow with Roger Blau, president of U.S. Steel, also a white tie evening at the opera with Tom Dewey. Cancel all speeches for a month. The conversation flows to political consequences. Nixon thinks there will be a bloodletting between Lyndon Johnson and Bobby Kennedy for the Democratic nomination. Maybe Adlai Stevenson will emerge as a compromise. I stay until 6.30. The next day, Saturday, the politicos are already at the Nixon apartment paying respect to the man who three years ago almost defeated Jack Kennedy. Former National Republican Chairman Len Hall is there. Cliff Folger, the 1960 finance chairman, is on the phone. Nixon now feels the Democrats will unite behind Johnson. They agree that the assassination greatly weakens Barry Goldwater. Nixon is convinced that he will probably be back in the race for president. His book about the 1964 presidential election will never be written 
I head home to Washington, a city now in mourning. Hess is the author of many books about politics, including The Professor and the President, Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the Nixon White House. I interviewed Steve on this podcast about this book in December 2014, so I invite you to listen to that. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air, and I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reboredo with assistance from Mark Holscher. Thanks to Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna for production assistance. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Pamela Berman and Julian Chung. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.